Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and all our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he, had, that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels, who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. Oh, I'm so excited that you guys are here. Did you know... As much as Easter is like the biggest Sunday of the year, the Sunday after Easter is one of the lowest attended Sundays of the year, and you guys are here. I actually saw saw a meme um, this week about what pastors say on Easter is like, it could be like this every single Sunday, it could be this great, and the response was like this advertisement, zero, zero percent interest for 12 months, you know, it was a great but uh, here you are. I guess maybe it was like either go to church or run the Cap 10K, and you were like, how about church instead, donut holes and coffee? Well, we are in this series that we are calling Stations of the Resurrection, and we're pressing into, for some people in the church calendar, the Easter is not just a day, but it's a season. Interesting, for those who do have the church calendar and they practice that, that Easter tide, the season that we are in, is actually the longest season out of the whole year. It's almost like we know that we need to linger in the truths of Easter. More than just a day we blow past and we put on our pastels and we have fun, maybe instead we need to be here and spend 50 days remembering the empty tomb and all that comes along with it. So we're going to do that as a church through these different stations. We're, we are supported by some artwork that a guy named Scott Erickson did. And so we're, we're going to do that. We have postcards that you take with you. And on the back, there's a QR code with a meditation that you can read uh, throughout that week. So I just find it interesting. When you look at what Jesus chose to do in, in, in this moment, is so contrary to what many of us would have imagined. If you think about this, think about this. Okay, so Jesus, this person, walks this world and claims to be the Messiah. Over and over again, he makes these claims, these, he has teachings around it, he performs miracles with this grand promise that he's bringing in a new kingdom, and most people didn't believe him. And in fact, they actually crucified him. They, yeah, he was put in the tomb, but then he rose again. 
What would you imagine someone doing in that moment? Maybe going to the temple in front of the masses and saying, do you believe me now? Like, see? <laughs> or maybe going to those who uh, turned away from him and maybe shaming them, or maybe like, kind of like a spooky ghost, kind of like traumatizing those who actually put him to death. He didn't do any of that. He didn't sell out stadiums and go on some huge tour. Instead, he has these curated moments with his followers, like these mostly one-on-one, these moments with these followers where he gently and graciously invites them to reimagine everything that he ever did. He reinstates them into connection to to himself and to their deeper purpose. I just find this absolutely fascinating, what Jesus chose to not do in these moments, this resurrected Savior and what he chose to do. This is what we find in this story in Luke chapter 24. Many people call this the road to Emmaus story. It's, uh, I think, actually in all the different stations that we're going to be looking at, I think this station in particular is geared for a church like ours, for a community like us. Because I think in many ways what we're going to find here is we're going to find maybe some similarities in these two different disciples, their experiences and our experiences, and we can watch what Jesus might want to do in our midst as well. I want to give a shout out. I was deeply inspired in this sermon by a author and spiritual director by the name of Ruth Haley Barton. She wrote a couple awesome books, and she has a great podcast if anyone is interested. I want to just give a shout out to her. So to highlight the beautiful details and the nuance in this passage, I'm just going to preach through this story in these two different stations that Scott the painter illustrated for us and about how Jesus can meet with us on the road and how Jesus can meet with us at the table. So this story is simply a story of two friends who are on a journey. This text shares that they are are being uh, met with Jesus in between two different places, between Jerusalem and Emmaus. They're on, the, they're on the roads, they're walking, and we find them in this between space. I think this is more than just a geographic location. I actually think they're between two different realities as well. I think there's something deeper going on, because they are between what was and what will be. They're between where they were and where they're hoping to go. They're between two different realities, and many people call this experience being in a liminal space. The Latin root for the word lemon it literally means a threshold. It's referring to someone who's in transition, who's moving from one place to another or one state of being into a, another state of being. I actually like how Richard Rohr, he spoke of the liminal space. He said this. He said, liminal space is a unique spiritual position where humans hate to be, <laughs> but where the biblical God is always leading them. So let's have a little chat as a group here. Why do we hate liminal space between two places, in these thresholds? How come, how come we dislike it so much? Change is hard. The unknown, right? Feels uncertain. Like even this moment right now, this is liminal space. We're hoping I move on. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> These are uncertain moments in our life. And we've experienced, we know what this is like, when, when you are entering into a space where you are just not sure what's going to take place. You're not sure what's going to be required of you. You're not sure what's gonna be, where you're going to be led. These kind of threshold moments require faith, 
require courage, and it also embraces a sense of unknowing, just giving up and surrendering to the fact that we don't know. What I've come to realize is that most of the Bible is stories of people in liminal space. Most of the scripture that we have, uh, that we share, is just snapshots of people in moments of transition, how God is inviting people into these moments. And it's almost like the text goes silent when that is not happening, but when people are experiencing this courageous invitation to journey from one place to another, all of a sudden, it picks back up. And what we find and again and again and again, the people of God, they meet with God uniquely in these liminal spaces, like the desert, moving from Egypt to the promised land. People are returning from exile. A new king is being anointed. Again and again, we find in Scripture, the story picks up when people are being ushered into the liminal space. And I think that's what these disciples are experiencing. They're leaving a reality where they had life with Jesus. They had expectations and promises. They knew where Jesus was going, at least where they thought that Jesus was going. And then all all of a sudden, things fell apart. And the house is just burning down. And with that, all of their hopes, all of their expectations, it all is falling apart. I think as a culture, we probably overuse and devalue the word trauma. We talk about, oh, this is, you know, I'm traumatized by this and that. These disciples are experiencing true trauma. They were traumatized over what just took place. They spent years with their beloved friend in whom they entrusted their future, but he was violently lynched and killed. They saw a lifeless corpse that was taken off a cross and placed in a tomb, and in that tomb with all of their hopes and their dreams for the future, their framework for understanding all of life and reality was undone. And I'm sure for many of them, they also were carrying in them the sense of shame for not doing enough for their friend. Maybe they could have tried to stop it. Maybe they could have done more. And their minds and their hearts are just riddled in this moment. We find this in the emotional state of that person, Cleopas, when he said, we had hoped. We had hoped. Past tense. Hope is done. It's gone. And so between what was and what will be, these two friends are talking. They're processing. They're trying to figure out what just took place. Now, I know uh, just from the privilege of pastoring people in this room A lot of you are in a liminal space right now. You are stepping into an unknown. You are feeling like you're being invited into the changing of chapters in your life story. Some of you, your life is shifting and you did not ask for it. And I just want you to watch Jesus in this story. Notice what Jesus does. And notice Jesus' heart for people in seasons like this. And though they didn't realize it, though you might have a hard time seeing it right now, this painful path is about to be sacred ground. In verse 14, they were talking with each other about everything that just had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up, or other translations, I love the phrase, drew close. Jesus drew close and walked along with them. Why did Jesus draw close in this particular moment? Well, the station on this road, 
I think the reason why Jesus drew close is for many reasons, because he's compassionate, he loved them, but I also think he drew close because they decided, they chose to journey with each other. It was in the conversation that Jesus drew close. These men could have chosen to go alone. They could have done like a lot of us do when things feel uncertain, when we feel vulnerable, we cocoon, we go inward, we portray the image that everything is fine. But instead, what they do is they are actually choosing to journey with each other in their vulnerability. And Jesus drew close in that space between two friends. Verse 17, Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still. Notice that. They stood still and their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these last, uh, there in these last days? What things, he asked. Notice what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is playing dumb, I guess you could say, but he's just Asking questions. He's drawing out their inner worlds. This is like Parenting 101. When a kid is coming to you and a great question will draw out their inner world. It's giving them the space to process and to vocalize everything that's going on, the stories that they're internalizing. And Cleopas, he ends by sharing this bewildering news. Not only that everything fall apart, but now some women have come and they've actually said that the tomb is empty. And they said that Jesus is alive again. And so Jesus here is drawing out these disciples' inner world. And he helps them process things in a different light. Now I want you to notice what the two things that Jesus does. After processing out loud, after drawing out their, question, uh, drawing out their inner world, Jesus does two different things. Verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are. Rude Jesus, Right? He's coming back resurrected, a little bit rude, a little angry. Maybe he's just staying in character as a stranger. I don't know. Uh, but I actually don't think it's mean-spirited, this word foolish, how foolish you are. It's just not understanding. That's another way of translating that. So he says that, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? So first, Jesus is talking about how suffering was something that was always promised. We see this in Jesus' life, and I'm sad to say it, friends, it's a part of our life too. A promise that we have too is that our lives will be tinged by suffering. We will experience it. We will encounter it. We want to enter glory without suffering. But we find here, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? It seems like the path to life and life again, will include suffering. You could summarize the whole Christian narrative with this. There's life, and then there's death, and there's life anew. And there's no skipping over to life anew without experiencing some death and suffering. We want the promised land without walking through the desert. We want to be actualized and mature without the suffering that seems to be necessary in our life, that sense of loss and pruning. It seems like, um, uh, I know that Richard Rohr, he talks about this too, uh, as well as other uh, people I've, I've, I've read and followed, that um, it seems like in the first half of your life, we learn from our successes. In the second half of our life, we learn from our failures. It's like this idea of we have to experience suffering and loss to continue to mature. That's why he asks for and prays for three good humiliations a day. 
I don't have to pray for that. I get it immediately, automatically. But this, this idea of it's like learning through reflection and learning through what we've seen in our life that we want to experience glory, but it includes some loss and suffering. And this suffering wasn't a surprise. It was part of Jesus' journey. But then Jesus does something else. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus now locates their experience in the larger story of scripture. When we are in these liminal spaces, when we're in places of an uncertainty, one of the greatest gifts that God might give you is the gift of God's word. To help us process our experiences, we can, ha- we can turn to God's word. God's word then can be an anchor. It can be a firm foundation. It can be like a lamp to our feet when we're walking through darkness. This is what God wants God's word to be for us in our life. There have been certain seasons in my life where I have clung to specific stories and uh, pieces of scripture that have helped me make sense of my world. For instance, in college, uh, I really clung to the promise that Jesus came to give us life and life to the fullest. Just before leaving a stable job at a church to help plant the vine, God met me in the tragedy of losing my brother-in-law in in a car accident. And uh, in that time, in that liminal time I was experiencing, God gave me my brother-in-law's life verse. I saw it at his funeral, and it's something I clung to, that God does not give us a spirit of timidity, but one of power and of love and of self-discipline, I held on to that during that season of uncertainty. During Jen's journey with cancer a couple years ago, um, I was grateful for God's word. I was able to cling on to certain promises like this one that I held dearly, was my grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. It's just going to be enough for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. There are going to be times that we go on the road between what was and what will be. And in that space, we have scripture to hold on to, that we can cling to, that can just help us make sense. That's what Jesus is doing. He's meeting with these disciples, and he's just talking to them about scripture, about what they had learned. He's trying to help them. All right, there's a framework for understanding everything that's taking place. But then Jesus does something unique with turning to God's word. Did you notice it? He explained to them, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Not only did Jesus frame their experience in God's word, but then Jesus also shows how scripture ultimately was pointing to him. If you know our church, you know that one of our distinctives, one of the things that we hope that we are as a community is that we are Jesus-centered. That kind of seems maybe an automatic thing that every church we Jesus-centered, but we just want to just really live into that reality. And this story shares an example of what that means for us, that we place Jesus not only in the center of our church's mission and what we're doing in our small groups on Sunday mornings and in different experiences in our life, we put Jesus in the center, but also we put Jesus in the center of how we read the Bible. We interpret Scripture through the lens of Jesus. When we come to difficult and challenging passages, we read it through the lens of, does this make sense in light of Jesus? Does Jesus help us uh, interpret and understand these different passages? We find Jesus doing that even here with these disciples. They're finding hope in the fact that all of Scripture was ultimately pointing to this unlikely Savior. 
And it all begins to make sense. We do this together and we realize something profound, that all of Scripture ultimately concerned themselves with Jesus. We are pointed to our need of a Savior, God's ultimate plan for salvation, God's passion to be with each of us, our call to be in a relationship with each other. All of this concerns themselves with Jesus. And they found this stirring, as we will find these two confused and broken-hearted disciples, something's going on inside of them. And something about the stranger's way of singing God's word seemed like good news to them. I think many of us have been tempted to throw the Bible out because of the way the Bible's been used in our life. I think many of us, we don't know what to do with this ancient text. It feels like out of date. Or many of us have felt abused by the teachings of the Bible. And I would just invite us to do what Jesus did, just to to center our reading and our understanding of God's word through Jesus. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. Tricky Jesus. But then they urged him strongly, will you stay with us? For it is nearly evening. The day is almost over with. So he went in to stay with them. So it was as they were welcoming the stranger into their home, that they, and they gathered around the table that something profound happens. So they went from this moment, journeying along the way, leaving this tragic moment without knowing of, that they were actually walking with the one who's divine, Jesus walking with them. And then now they find themselves at this table. I love the title of this participation because they're about to experience and participate in something profound. Verse 30 When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? You could tell something was going on in the road, that their hearts were burning in the conversation, in reading and discussing God's word. Something, though, needed to take place. What was it about the breaking of the bread that all of a sudden allowed them to see? Was it just because Jesus chose to, you know, pull the scales off their eyes? Was it because they had seen Jesus break the bread so many times that all of a sudden they realized who he was? Or is there something more profound taking place around the table? The answer is, we don't really know. But the interesting thing to me was... When did their hearts start to burn? It was way before this, while they're in conversation with a stranger, while they're discussing Scripture. But Scripture wasn't enough to open their eyes. The conversation wasn't enough to open their eyes. It was when the bread was broken. Oftentimes, our transformation usually doesn't just happen on an intellectual level. It's not just about being intellectually convinced It takes an experience to break through. Our issue with transformation is not an issue of getting the right information. Like, it's not just like if we can just make sure that they hear this thing or read this thing. It takes something else. And that's really hard for us because we're tempted to believe if only that person could read just what I just read or hear that sermon or go to that conference or watch that thing, they will finally get it and then we get super disappointed because they yawn at it, right? It's like, what, what, what happened? They didn't get it. It's hard because we want to predict how God is going to work. We want to manage it. 
But transformation rarely works this way. Why? We need Jesus to intervene. Something mysterious happened at that table, and the disciples had their part too. They participated too because they chose to keep company with Jesus so that when the bread is broken, something happens. They open up. They, we can see that they are renewed again. It's not just about being intellectually convinced. It was about Jesus meeting with them. That's why a critical part of our church's mission is to follow Jesus through sacred experiences because we believe things like communion and baptism, our own times of meditation and worship, that Jesus often shows up. And if we meet Jesus in these sacred moments, we might begin to realize that all of life can be sacred. I'm talking here about the proverbial 18-inch gap of transformation, the 18 inches from your mind into your heart, from head knowledge to true heart change. You see that these disciples knew something was going on as they were walking on the road. They heard Jesus retell the story, but it just didn't seem to really click in. They couldn't see it yet. But it wasn't until they sat down at the table with Jesus, and Jesus took that bread and broke it, that they could finally see. I think this is especially true for those who are in liminal spaces, in the times of unknowing, in between what was and what will be, that transformation is found oftentimes in the mystery of meeting the resurrected Savior in places unforeseen. How your gracious companion wants to meet with you either on the road or at the table. Your gracious companion walks alongside of you and oftentimes you don't even know it. I love the word companion because it literally means with bread. Like our, our companion is Jesus who walks with us, sits us down at the table with bread and breaks it and something unique happens. After journeyed with these two heartbroken, confused friends through liminal space, this station or this moment ends with Christ breaking the bread and them realizing that they're met with Jesus face to face. Can't you imagine that moment when all of a sudden the lights turn on and they recognize Jesus? I imagine Jesus like let it pause for a second as all of a sudden their faces, their faces were astonished. They took a breath in. I imagine Jesus with like a, a smirk of a rascal before he disappears. Just, just taking it in and seeing that. It it's, would have been so frustrating for me because he's gone. I would want Jesus to unpack things. I would want some next steps. I want, you know, what's, what, what's going on now? But instead, Jesus disappears. And all of a sudden, they're left with this bread and a chair that was once filled. They just didn't see Jesus anew. I imagine that it changed everything. I'm curious for you. When was the last time your heart burned for Christ? When was the last time that all of this was more than just information? It was more than doctrine or dogma or religion. It was about this transforming power that we can interact with, that we can encounter. When was the last time that your eyes were opened to see life through a different framework? There's nothing that Jesus wants for your life. There's nothing that God wants for your life than for you to have an encounter with the risen Savior either on the road or at the table. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, 
go to our website at thevineaustin.org.